Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel 17 this morning. First Samuel 17. As you're turning, hear the words of Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the book of Kings ends, or book of Judges ends, and that's the refrain throughout the book of Judges. Israel would break out in sin. There'd be the declaration that there was no king explaining why they broke out in sin. A judge would rise up, would restore Israel to right relationship, and then you would hear the refrain again. Why did they break out? Because there was no king in those days, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The events of the book of Samuel take place or begin to take place somewhere between Judges 14 and 16. Samuel is born during the reign or during the ministry of Samson. It takes place in chapter 14. And Samson dies about the time that Samuel is around 20 years old. That's where we are when we come to the book of Samuel. We're right on the heels of the book of Judges. So Samuel is answering the question that Judges proposes. There is no king. The people keep breaking out. Who will lead this people? Samuel is concerned primarily with the establishment of the monarchy in Israel, but it also focuses on how that monarchy will be established by the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies will establish the kingdom. It was God that would establish that. So our passage this morning in 1 Samuel 17 is primarily concerned with the role and responsibility of the king of Israel. But secondarily, it is demonstrating how the Lord of hosts secures the monarchy. How he secures and establishes the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of heaven, ultimately, forever. Now this passage this morning is a very familiar narrative. And that typically makes for an intimidating sermon. Because everyone knows the text, everyone knows how the story goes. So... We'll move quickly this morning. We'll move through a lot of things. In the interest of time, I'm going to be assuming a lot. I'm going to assume that you know a lot of the narrative. So if I come to a point and I haven't proven it sufficiently for you, well, we can talk afterward. I'll be glad to show you how I came to the conclusion to which I came. When we get to passages like this, what we often do is we'll take these stories in the Old Testament and we isolate them to such a degree that they become little more than that. Just stories. Right? I mean, what does a children's Bible consist of? The stories of the Old Testament without any context as to what they meant to Israel, what they meant to redemptive history, what they mean within the context of the passage. That's why I prefer to refer to them as narratives or accounts because that gives us a little tethering to the fact that they are a historical event. These aren't fanciful legends. This is history. And it's history that meant something. It meant something significantly enough that God ordained to have it written down as a record for us for all time. 
When we come to Old Testament passages, you've been trained well to look forward to Christ, right? You look forward. What does this passage in the Old Testament teach me about the coming Messiah? What does it teach me about the Christ whom we have gathered to worship this morning? Where we lack often in our understanding of Old Testament passages and how to approach them is not only do we look forward, but we must also look back. But I would argue, in fact, that before we can look forward to Christ, we must first learn to look back to the history of Israel, to Genesis, to the narratives that come before. Because these are not isolated events. As you read through the Bible chronologically, you become acutely aware that this is all one story. It's all one historical narrative that builds on top of itself. And you really can't read 1 Samuel 17 without knowing that 1 Samuel 1 through 16 is the next chapter to Judges 1 through 21. And you can't read Judges without understanding that that's the culmination of the whole book of Joshua. And that Joshua is the culmination of all of the Exodus narratives and everything that comes before it. Everything builds on itself. So when we read the Old Testament, we must not only look forward, but in order to look forward clearly, we must be able to look backward. When you look backward, you begin to see that in the Old Testament, there is a cyclical garden motif that plays out over and over again throughout Israel's history. It goes like this. A garden of Eden is presented. The man or the ideal man is uh, put into the garden and that new Adam must face the serpent. The serpent comes and tempts and there is either failure or there is success. If there's failure, you revert back to the beginning of the garden motif. If there's success, you progress to the exodus, to the wanderings, and then to the ultimate entering into the promised land. When you read this motif, the cyclical garden motif over and over again, you see that Israel never makes it past that final serpent encounter. They always fail. Whoever the new Adam is always ultimately fails. The serpent keeps coming back and the new Adam always comes short before he can enter into the promised land ultimately. We see that with Adam. We see that with Cain, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Judges, all of them. You see this garden motif. And we see that with Saul in our text this morning. Saul has been brought to the promised land. The promised land is clearly depicted as a new garden of Eden, the new uh, place of paradise that God has provided for his people. Saul is chosen as the king to work and keep the new garden, to exercise dominion and subdue the land and guard and protect the borders of the promised land. He's depicted as the ideal man. He is the new Adam. God, when he gave Israel a king, did not give them some scrub that was going to be a horrible king. When you read 1 Samuel 9, 10, and 11, what you find is that Samuel is the exact perfect person that you want as a king. He's described as the ideal man. He is beautiful. He's handsome. And you might not think much of that because we're conditioned to think that uh, God only looks at the heart. And it's true. God does examine the heart. But understand Old Testament imagery. In the Old Testament, uh, 
saints understood that beauty was a picture of God's blessing. Why do you think that uh, the text of Scripture points out, takes pains to point out that Saul was so handsome, that David was so handsome? It was to demonstrate God's blessing on them. uh, Saul is uh, uh, depicted as beautiful, he's handsome, he's big, he's strong, he's literally head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel. He is their giant. He's smart, he's humble, he's different. You read those two chapters to introduce him as the new king and you think Israel has won. They have gained a good king because he is presented as the ideal man. In chapter 11, he's told to fight Nahash. His first battle is against Nahash, and Nahash is presented as the serpent. You say, well, how do you get that he's the serpent? Well, it's pretty complicated. Nahash means serpent. You say, well, that might be a stretch. That could be a coincidence. Well, here's why I don't think it's a coincidence. It's the same word that's used for serpent in Genesis 3. It doesn't get much more on the nose than Saul had to fight Nahash. And what did he do? He conquered Nahash. There's great victory. The ideal man has met the serpent. And he's conquered the serpent. But what do we find immediately after? Well, Saul fails to trust God. He fails to wait for Samuel at Gilgal in chapter 13. And in chapter 14, he makes this uh, oblivious decision. To withhold the blessings of the promised land from his soldiers. No one, he says, no one eats or drinks anything until this battle is over. Now you might be able to make it 10 or 12 hours without food or drink and you're okay, right? You get a little hangry, but you can make it. But try going that long while you're in the throes of intense battle. That's what Saul says. He fails. And so ultimately what happens here is uh, we get to our passage and... He's confronted with Egypt again. Oh, Michael, you're, you're confused. They're not fighting the Egyptians. They're fighting the Philistines. That's why we have to look back. The Philistines are the representative Egyptians because the Philistines are the cousins to the Egyptians. They come from Egypt. They are held up in these uh, historical books as the new Egypt. He's confronted with Egypt again. And once more, Israel is facing giants, barring them from entering into the promised land. Remember in Numbers 13, what happened? They sent the spies in. They come back with grapes. Now just wrap your minds around this. They come back with bunches of grapes that were so large, two men carry them on a pole between them. That's, that's the land, okay? Then they're, they're afraid to enter in the land because there's a giant there, right? Is that what the text says? No. The text says it's a land full of giants. And so they're afraid of the giants. They don't go in and then they wander uh, around because they're terrified of the giants. That's where we find ourselves this morning. Once again, Israel is facing a giant. So what's going to happen? What's, what's intended to unfold before us with this text? Well, they're, they're afraid. And Philistia has seen it fit to attack. It's perfect time for attack. The ark of God is no longer going out before the army of Israel. That ceased to take place because it had been captured. God had defeated Dagon. Philistia had sent the ark back. And it never made it back into the tabernacle. Israel defiled the ark and it was kept 
apart from them because they feared the God of the ark. Saul has been rejected by God and that gets round. So much so that very quickly we have the Philistines ready to attack. This is the prime moment for an attack and Israel is vulnerable. Or so they think. This morning, as we walk through the text, we're not going to read the story because, like I said, I think you're familiar with the story. I want to look at, at uh, five, uh, five points this morning that help us understand uh, what we're looking at when we come to this passage. The first is the foe of Israel. We need to consider this foe that we are encountering. Look at verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. So here's what we do when we see this description, right? Look at this man. He was huge, right? So we get all of our conversion charts out and we do the math, which is helpful. He's nine foot, nine inches tall. That's a big dude. He's nine foot, nine inches tall. The weight of his coat of mail is somewhere between 125 and 150 pounds. So let's say that he wore the woman's version and only has the 125 pound coat of mail on. That's a lot of weight. Have you guys ever wore one of those weight vests to work out? They're usually about 20 to 40 pounds and you run a couple miles in that and you're ready to fall over for the rest of the day. This guy has 125 pounds at minimum hanging on his torso. His spear, the shaft of the spear is like a weaver's beam. I know that you guys are like me and you immediately understand what a weaver's beam is and what that looks like, but just in case you forgot. The, the looms of those days, uh, so what they did is they had this, this main beam that went across the top of the loom. And this was the weaver's beam that we're talking about. And the purpose of that beam was to hold the counterweights that did something in the weaving process. I read what the counterweights did, and i just be honest, I couldn't understand it. Because I, I, we're lucky I understood what I read. But these, this main weaver's beam... It's about two and a half inches in diameter. About five feet long on a normal one. But two and a half inches. That's what we're trying to demonstrate here. Is that this dude was huge. And he's taking this thing that's awkward and cumbersome for everyone else to grab a hold of. And he's carrying it around like a little stick. Have you guys ever seen the pictures of Andre the Giant holding a soda can? It, it would be like me holding a double A battery in my hand right now. That's what it looked like. And that's what is trying to be shown here. Goliath is holding this weaver's beam and it's nothing. Because he's got this spear that's this thick thing, but at the end of it is a spearhead that weighs somewhere between 15 and 18 pounds. That's a lot of muscle. This dude is huge. Not only does he have this huge coat of mail, this huge spear, but he's got bronze all over his body. His head is covered with a helmet of bronze. His uh, shins to his feet are covered. This dude is so strong that what would paralyze us because we wouldn't be able to move a muscle, he's walking around and ready to fight in. 
That's how strong he is. And that's where our attention is naturally drawn. We want to uh, really magnify the intensity of the difference between the giant Goliath and this small David. When we do that, I think we often just miss what I believe is the most important description of Goliath in this whole section. In verse 5 it says, He was armed with a coat of mail. And that's just a terrible, terrible translation. The best translation comes from the NASB, where it says he had scale armor. But that misses not only this portion, but I think it misses a contrast later on in the text. The Hebrew actually says that he had scaly scale armor. Now you have this enemy, this foe that's presented as a barrier to Israel taking hold of the promised land ultimately, who's clothed in scaly scale armor, and what do you envision? Well, if you're a Hebrew that is familiar with the history of Israel and the cyclical garden motif that they were well aware of, then you see the serpent standing in opposition to Israel. And if that doesn't make you think it enough, if you're not convinced yet that this is intended to be a picture of the serpent, hear what it says in verse 16. For 40 days... The Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. We see throughout the the text that Goliath is calling out Israel, specifically taunting them for the God that is supposed to deliver them. And in verse 16, we see when that's taking place. That's happening in the morning and the evening. Did he just like beautiful sunrises and nice sunsets? Is that what Goliath is? Is he really just a poet at heart? Is that what he's saying? No. What takes place in the morning and the evening in Israel every single day of their lives? The sacrifices. Every morning and every evening, even at the battleground, you're offering up sacrifices, offerings to the Lord. And it's at that time, coincidence? No. It's at that time that the Philistine giant comes out and taunts and mocks Israel. Because he's taunting and mocking their God. Your God has abandoned you. And even if he had, he couldn't help you now. The question that is presented in the narrative here is there's a serpent in the garden. Who will drive him out? And the answer is not Saul. So let's look at the failures of Saul here. Look at uh, just three passages, or three portions of this passage here this morning. Uh, Verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. Um, Verse 8, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Verse 11, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 19, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Why why does the author do that? Did you catch that? Who's fighting the Philistines? Who's standing in opposition 
to the giant. Well, our minds say, well, Israel is fighting. But that's not what the text says. The text calls out one man and then the rest of the army. Saul and Israel. It's clear from uh, Samuel 9 to 17 and then the text of chapter 17 that this is intended to be a battle of champions. It was intended to be Goliath versus Saul. Saul is the one that should have been standing up to fight the giant of Philistia. Because Saul, if you'll recall, is the giant of Israel. He is the one who is literally head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He is the one that is presented as the great champion of Israel. He's supposed to be the one that fights these battles. And previously he had been. He had been a mighty warrior. He had went against the enemies of Israel. He had slain his thousands. Not only was he supposed to be the man called by God, ordained by the people, but he was the only one that had the weapons to fight Saul. You see, Philistia had imposed an iron monopoly in Israel. After their skirmishes in chapter 6 and chapter 11, Philistia uh, bears down and realizes we we can't let them have weapons. That's not going to fly. So in chapter 13, we read there's no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. To the point that if you wanted to get your plowshare or your mattock or your axe sharpened, you didn't get to do it in town. You had to go to the Philistines and ask their permission. Verse 22 of chapter 13 tells us, so on the day of the battle, there was neither sword sword nor spear found in the any in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan but Saul and Jonathan had them two people in all of Israel had iron implements of war one was Saul and the other was his son i think there are some political reasons why Jonathan is not taking this challenge but Saul is the one who has the iron implements of war he has an iron spear to fight the giant. So the significance of his unwillingness to fight is magnified even more. Not only is he the giant of Israel, but he also has the weapons that no one else has. And then we see that intensified even more. In verse 38 of chapter 17, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Again, we fail to look backward when we count our narrative, so we often have trouble handling these types of exchanges. But this, this section serves to show us at least three purposes. 
One, it intensifies the notion that Saul should be the champion. We've got this young man who's ready to fight. He needs some armor. Where's he going to get it? Well, the one man who has it that it fits isn't going to go out to fight. So he's going to give it to someone else. He needs a weapon. Well, I've got a weapon. I'm not going to use it. You can have it. It intensifies that Saul should be the champion. Where do we go to get the things to fight the Philistine champion from the Israelite champion? It also shows us that Saul had begun to look more like the serpent than like the servant of God. Here's where uh, a, a good translation would help us. And at the end of verse 38, he's clothed with a coat of mail. Here, it just, this is just scaly armor. Goliath is clothed with scaly scale armor. This is just scale armor. And I think this is trying to show us that, that Saul has begun his descent. Remember, he started out as this ideal man, this great man that is going to demonstrate uh, how God is intending to lead the people. But he sins and he refuses to repent. And we see for the rest of his narrative a slide, a decline. And we see that he's beginning to look more like the serpent than like the servant of God. It intensifies that. Third, it symbolizes the transfer of the kingdom. Remember that uh, crazy vow that... Saul had made, no one, no one eats until this battle is over. And Jonathan ate, right? He dipped his, the end of his staff in some honey and ate it in just one motion. And what happened? His eyes became bright and he won the battle. And Saul, in his lunacy, said, Today I marked you for death. Saul, uh, Jonathan, the rightful heir of the kingdom, the rightful heir of the throne, would lose that inheritance. And it would ultimately go to David. And as Saul puts on the armor that should belong to the king, he puts it on David, symbolizing that the kingdom is going to be transferred. We see this uh, even clearer at the, at the beginning of chapter 18 when Jonathan does the exact same thing. Jonathan's heart is knit to David after he speaks with Saul. And he puts his implements of armor on him and says, This is you. David is being depicted as the true king. Saul fails to drive the serpent out of the garden. So again, the reader is left to ask, who will drive out the serpent? David will. This is one of those times where I, I chose to honor an elder by coming up with this third point, the furnishing of David. This is the, the provision of David, the arrival of David. But I had so many F's, I wanted to honor Matt and alliterate. So we have the furnishing of David. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an, uh, an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. We ought to pay attention to things like this when we come into a text. One, this has already been told to us in the book of Samuel. Two, what does this have to do at all with the narrative? That Jesse had eight sons. Well, we're intended to be reminded that a new creation is being symbolized. The eighth son. 
David is not just some random number in the uh, lot of eight sons. He is the eighth son. And remember, we are walking through a cyclical garden theme that does not terminate with David, but continues to go on. And David is again bringing up this cyclical theme. We look at verse 17. Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take, to, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Have you ever read that and just asked, What? What? Bread and cheese? Like why, why, why is that detail here? Why are we learning that David is the eighth son? Why are we learning that David is sent to take bread and cheese to his brothers and to the commanders? That seems very odd. And I think it's intended to make you think that. So that you become aware of what it's saying about David. What happened in chapter 14? We just mentioned it. This is a nod back to when uh, Saul refused food and sustenance to his army. The food and sustenance that came from the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. The land that God had provided. The, the materials that God had provided His people to sustain them in battle. And Saul said no. He rejected the provision of God. It reminds us that Saul is foolish, but it also shows that David is the one that provides for his people. David is literally bringing his brothers milk and honey. The very sustenance of the promised land. And David does whatever is required of him. We know enough about David, right? We know that he fights lions and bears. If there was a tiger in there, oh my! He fights wild animals and doesn't freak out about it. And yet, there's a war going on and he's loyal to his father. And his father has him tending the sheep and running back and forth between the camps. David does what is required of him. He has a sense of duty, a sense of obligation, a sense of responsibility. When he's questioned about this daunting task of facing the giant, how can you do this? He gives the most casual brag ever. I mean, you know, when a lion attacks, I just grab it by the beard and kill it. What else are you supposed to do? And then there's the bears. I kill them too. Just with my bare hands. A lot of people will will think that uh, we we don't know what to do with these stories. And so we, we try to spiritualize them even more than they already are. And so we'll say like, okay, so when David took the stones, the Holy Spirit mystically guided the stone through the air and landed it just supernaturally. It was going out into the creek, but it bent and it went straight into Goliath's eyebrows. No. What we find is even more impressive. That God had providentially equipped David for this moment. He had providentially brought lions to attack the herd so that David had to learn to steal his nerves, to calm his mind, and to fight the enemy, and to defend that which God had made him a steward of. 
God had established this moment. And he had established the man for this moment. With the strength and the cunning and the experience to win the day. This David has a sense of honor as well. And a loyalty not only to his father but to his God. He does this thing where he comes into the camp. And he hears the giant taunting. And he says, is there a reward for this? And sometimes we don't know what to do with that because we've been, it's just been drilled into our brains. Listen, we can't ever ask for anything good. We can never be concerned about any kind of reward or benefit. And David, David is, he's not really concerned about this. One, he is. Two, it's secondary. Read through the text and you see David hears the mock and he says, why isn't anyone killing this guy? This guy's mocking our God. Do you hear that? He's mocking our God. That is enough for you to get off your tail and fight this man. Why aren't any of you doing that? Is, is there any reward? And he hears the reward and the tone of the text reads like this. So wait a minute. This dude is mocking our God, belittling us, and you're telling me that there's a great reward that Saul has promised to make your family tax-free for the rest of your life and you get to be a part of the court and you get to marry one of his daughters? In the words of R.C. Sproul, David looks at them and says, what's wrong with you people? What's wrong? Why aren't you doing this? And the tone of this is, if none of you will do this, I'll do it. And I can't believe that none of you are willing to fight. And when he encounters Saul and he tells him, there is a sense of proud dignity that says, I am going to do this with or without your blessing. David is, of course, given the armor. He rejects the armor. And there's more salt rubbed in the wound that Saul should have been doing this. He took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. How did he put the giant down? With a sling and a stone. Every shepherd in Israel was competent with a sling and a stone. But there was one tribe that was renowned as experts with a sling and a stone. In Judges chapter 20, verse 16, we see that the tribe of Benjamin specialized in sling warfare. So much so that these left-handed warriors could sling at a hare and not miss. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was an expert with a sling. And there he sat, cowering with his iron spear. The iron spear that he was so poorly equipped to use that when he tried to pin David to the wall in the same room, he missed on multiple occasions. Saul was with a spear like I am with a gun. The safest place for you to be when I have a gun is in my line of sight. Because I will not come anywhere near you. Saul was incompetent with a spear. 
but he was an expert with a sling. And David takes the sling that Saul should have used and slays Goliath. David did what Saul wouldn't do. Saul should have been the champion of Israel, but David replaced him in every way. So let's look at the fight. The fight and the finish. Let's just look past the the verbal uh, declarations and the taunts and just get straight to the fight. Because, I mean, we've got 47 verses of buildup. This is going to be an epic battle. This is going to be long and drawn out and very detailed. Verse 48, when the Philistines, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. That's it. Two verses. Two two verses describe the battle. I know it was quick. I know that there was uh, just the one action. But if this was the focal point, surely we could get more. This whole chapter is about this battle, isn't it? No. The battle is secondary. The battle's not the point of the text. What happens after gets more attention than the battle itself, and it drives us closer to the point. Verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath at the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Notice in this long section to conclude the narrative, three mentions of the head of the Philistine being carried away. David cuts the head off and he carries it and he carries it to Jerusalem. Why? Well, first, let's notice the emphasis on the name, the Philistine. Have you caught that in your reading of the text? We refer to this as the narrative of David and Goliath. That's not how the author of Samuel does. Goliath is referred to by name twice. In 58 verses, you get Goliath twice. 24 times he's referred to as the Philistine. Now that's not some derogatory thing. They say, oh, we're not even going to name him by name. No, we're told at the outset why he's referred to as the Philistine. 
Because he is the representative head of the army. He is the champion of Philistia. Now when we're told that he's the champion, that doesn't mean he was the greatest uh, fighter ever, that he won all of his fights. No, he was the representative. Remember the taunt? Remember the deal? If you beat me, we'll submit. If I beat you, you submit. Felicia didn't keep their end of the deal, but that was, that was the argument. That was the agreement. He is the representative head and the representative head of the army, the serpent, the champion of the enemy has had his head cut off and carted back to Jerusalem, buried outside the gate. And you say, well, hold on. How do we know that it was buried outside the gate? Because David was a man of God and he wouldn't have carried a dead body into the holy city to defile the city, to make the city unclean. What did you have to do with a dead body in Jerusalem? You had to take it outside the gates so as not to defile the city. So David buries Goliath's head outside the gates of Israel. Tradition holds that this place, this pile of Goliath, This goal, Goliath, is the place of our Lord's crucifixion, Golgotha. Couldn't find enough evidence to support that. But the language of the Old Testament, the intentionality of cleanliness, and the location of where uh, David likely enters and exits, it makes sense. Regardless of whether he buried his head in Golgotha or not, What's intended to be displayed is that the serpent, the representative head of the enemy, has had his head cut off. And that reminds us, it calls back to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. David has driven the serpent out of the garden. He has crushed the serpent's head. But the problem is that the serpent comes back. The serpent would always come back. He keeps coming back. Throughout Israel's history, the serpent keeps coming back. That brings us to our focal point of the passage. Leadership matters. Bear with me. Saul was afraid... To fight the giant. So the people were afraid. To fight the giant. What was Saul doing? He was cowering in his tent. The army was encamped around him. What were they doing? Well we read over and over again. That the entire army was cowering as well. David conquered the giant. And what happens immediately? The army rushes in. And this is not an army with one giant. This is an army of giants. And Israel rushes in after their new king. And they become giant killers. They went from being terrified of the giants to now pursuing them, overcoming them, and looting their camp. Like that. Because their king slayed the giant. 
And it wasn't just this one moment. One moment. By the time we get to 2 Samuel 21, we see that it is in their DNA to slay the giants. Bear with me as we read 2 Samuel 21:15. There was war again with the Philistines of Israel. And David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbibinanob, wow, I stumbled on that one, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistines and killed him. One giant down. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp. So David went out to battle and they said, I'm fighting beside my giant killing king. I'm killing this giant. But then they put David aside and said, David, you're not going out to battle with this anymore. But we still serve a giant killing king. And read what continues to happen. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. Two giants down. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes to each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants, four giants down. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David. And by the hand of his servants. When the king kills giants, the people kill giants. When the king is afraid of the giants, the people cower in fear. And they're rendered useless, powerless to oppose the enemy. But David was a king that conquered giants. And so Israel became a people that conquers giants. It was true of Saul, it's true of David, that people follow their king. But you have to remember, the book of Samuel is concerned with the establishment of the monarchy. Not the temporary monarchy, not the momentary monarchy, but the eternal monarchy of the true king of Israel. When you get to the end of Samuel, you might come to the conclusion that Solomon is the true king. And he's the rightful descendant, he's the rightful heir of David, he's the rightful recipient of the throne, but he is not the true king of the monarchy. Jesus is the true king of the monarchy. Remember, Samuel's taking place on the heels of judges. There was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We get kings in Samuel and in 1 Kings, and what happens? The people still break out against God. It wasn't that the king was bad, or the kingdom was bad. It was that the king wasn't perfect. The king couldn't overcome the serpent every time. There would be progress in the garden motif, and then there would be regress, 
progress and regress all throughout the history of the kings. But Jesus is the king that changes the hearts of the people. So that the people now do what is right in their own eyes because their hearts have been changed. They've been sanctified and they're made righteous in Christ. And now we are able to serve under the king because Christ is the king who concludes the cyclical garden motif. You come to the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and I would encourage you to look through the rest of the New Testament and see if you can find a garden motif you can't because Christ concluded it it's over the serpent has been defeated Christ is the one who faces all the temptations of the serpent and does not fail he does not succumb he is the sinless sacrifice he is the one who enters into the strong man's house and binds him. Not will bind him, has bound him. He is the one who crushes the serpent's head. Not temporarily, not momentarily, ultimately and forever, completely, the serpent's head has been crushed. Christ is the one who has established the throne forever and will never be unseated. That is what Samuel is pointing to. In 1 Samuel 17, this Christ, who is the true king, who conquers the serpent. David is a type. He is a shadow that's pointing to the greater king of Israel. This Jesus sits on the throne and will not be unseated. He is the one who leads his captives in the train of his robe. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. But Christ has struck down every enemy and sits on the throne because the work is complete with every enemy under his feet. And we, like the army of Israel in chapter 17, rush into battle after our king who has slain the serpent. And we're empowered to slay serpents as well. Because our king has taken down the giant serpent. We too are empowered to take down the enemy of God. To such degree that the gates of hell itself cannot and will not stand against us. We will pursue our enemies. We will conquer because Christ has pursued. Christ has conquered. We come carrying the banner of our Lord, the great King of Israel. Let's take that into the new year and be victorious in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us this morning and this wonderful text of your holy inspired word. In your Son, you have conquered the enemy, ultimately and finally, and we are victorious in him. Let us be bold in our pursuit of the enemy. Let us be bold in our uh, exercising of dominion. Let us be uh, imitators of the Christ who has slain the serpent before us. Lord, we thank you as we come to the t- as we come to the table this morning, in Jesus' name, Amen.